I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are launching our Responsible Filmmaking miniseries. First up, we've got Jess King, who literally wrote the book on inclusive screenwriting for film and television. But before we start talking to Jess, just a reminder that we always like to plug our new free monthly newsletter, which you can find at the bottom of Breaking Out Pod. If you're interested in regularly being reminded of cool things that we are doing, as well as getting a little jolt of creative inspiration at the end of every month. So uh, bottomofbreakingoutpod.com, sign up. It's free. It's fun. It's a good time. But without further ado, welcome, welcome to Jess. Please introduce yourself and what you do. Hey, everyone. I am Jess King, and I am a filmmaker, a screenwriter, as well as a professor of screenwriting. I teach screenwriting at DePaul University currently, and I have basically, for the past 20 years, had a dual career in both filmmaking and education. Did you start as someone who wanted to do academics? Did you start as wanting to do filmmaking full-time, or did you always imagine kind of a hybrid career for yourself? I mean, I think it took me a really long time to imagine anything akin to a career for myself. (laughs) first off. (laughs) And I basically started teaching. So originally I taught high school. I taught high school in the city of Chicago uh, for 15 years, taught English and film. Which is where you're still based, right? I still am based in Chicago, yes. And as if starting a brand new career in education wasn't difficult enough, I also simultaneously and very much on a whim started making films. Mm. And so, you know, being a teacher allowed me to, because we started so early and got out early, I could write in the afternoons, I could film in the summers. And so the film part happened simultaneously, but it was also kind of accidentally. And then I just kind of couldn't stop doing it. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the the general storyline for people. It's like, yeah, it happened. And then it just kept happening. It just (laughs) kept happening. And then eventually I was able to quit my public ed job to do filmmaking more full-time. And then initially, that's when I started adjuncting at DePaul. And now I'm a full professor, or not a full professor, I'm a full-time faculty member there. Sure. Very cool. And so when you work on films, what are your general roles? Like producer, writer, producer, director, writer? I've primarily worked in the realm of, I mean, indie and primarily indie TV. And so I tend to co-write with my partner, Julie, uh, who Christina knows. Yeah, friend of the pod. Yes. I I was actually just listening to the episode where Christina and I were talking about Julie because of Christina's representation through Julie and OTV. And then because Mm -hmm. I had just gone to Stowe, where Julie was one of my mentors. And Julie and I knew each other from before that. So yes, this is a a reunion pod, sort of, (laughs) for a further person who knows and loves Julie Keck. Absolutely. Yeah, so we would co-write and then I would often direct and then also run post and do editing. Mm -hmm. And so those are the main roles. I think anyone who's done indie knows you end up doing a little bit of everything. But those are the three things that I primarily focus my energy on. Very cool. cool. So as an academic and uh, at DePaul, what what do you tend to teach? What were your focuses? What excited you about going to higher education versus public school education? Yeah, well, I mean, leaving public education was in part just because it's crushing and humiliating Mm -hmm. and the the, the attacks on public ed are real. Mm -hmm. And so 
there was that. I did love, though, the teaching part, and I loved my students tremendously. In terms of moving into academia and teaching in particular at DePaul, they brought me in to teach an independent television sequence primarily. And so I got to, right off the bat, be designing my own curriculum around uh, writing the web series and then eventually producing the web series and then marketing and distributing the web series. And as I did that and kind of got to know the culture there, they were very generous in letting me design lots of classes. They have the like these special topics courses at both the graduate and the undergraduate level. And so I was able to design classes. I, I have a class I've done different iterations of called the female gaze, which is looking at like what you know, what is a female gaze, both in terms of like directing and cinematography, but also in terms of screenwriting. Mm. I've done a class, a special topics class called Queering Narratives that looks similarly at how do we queer screenwriting practices? How do we shift? How do we queer genre? How do we queer character design? Things like that. And that has all led to kind of the project of the book, which is supported by a lot of the kinds of classes I design. I now have a class called Inclusive Representation for Film and Television that I co-designed with my fantastic colleague Fatu Samba that we're doing both at the undergrad and the grad level in screenwriting. Those are kinds of where my, I feel like my creative teaching energy goes. And then I also mm -hmm. teach, you know, traditional TV writing classes like how sure, to write a sure. spec script and all of that stuff, which is fine and fun, but my passion is in these other areas. These more niche subjects. Well, great segue because yeah. that's kind of the, the subject that we brought you on to talk about today. So uh, as we said at the top, this is one of our new mini series in season two of our podcast. We're doing mini series where we group episodes around a theme or topic. And the theme of this mini series is going to be responsible filmmaking, which of course frequently starts at the script level. And you have written the book about inclusive screenwriting. So to start like really zoomed out, what are some misconceptions about inclusivity when it comes to Hollywood in your experience and more specifically in screenwriting? What are some like misconceptions in that? That's a great question. Uh, I think one of the biggest ones with screenwriting is people will immediately go to like stereotypes and they'll be mm -hmm. like, don't create stereotypes. And then they'll say, just create three-dimensional complex characters. That's how you do inclusion. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that's all well and good, but it's so surface and it doesn't get into the the ways that like character design is structured towards particular, towards supporting particular identities. Mm. Um, so I think that's uh, a really common misconception of this fixation on stereotypes and tropes. Then I would also say that there's a kind of along with the idea of like people who are really invested in like colorblind casting, like this whole idea yeah. of just this sort of colorblind writing that you can just write a story and then kind of wait for the casting process to see who's like the right fit mm -hmm. as opposed to actually writing very culturally specific stories and culturally specific characters that demand particular people with particular identities fill those roles those are two of the biggest ones. And with that last one, I think too, there's too much, this idea that you can just pour any character into any narrative mold um, mm -hmm. without sort of adjusting. Like you can, like as if you can pour like a white non-binary character into a story 
designed originally for like a cis white male, like mm-hmm. as if our experiences sure. are so aligned that we could just, that a character who was like me could just exist in like a hero's journey narrative without any kind of adjustments. So can you can you be specific then about like what those adjustments to like the classic storytelling screenwriting rules in the rule book that that we you know all of us are taught in screenwriting 101 and and how that's not a one size fits all situation at all? Yeah. Let's see how do I that gets into the real nitty-gritty uh <laughs> which is good. So I think for one the One thing I talk about a lot is this idea that, you know, you have to, again, be very culturally specific. So if you're thinking about like culturally specific character design, for example, then you have to think about the fact that what some people would sort of shunt to the side as like characterization is actually essential to the character. So within screenwriting, there's this division between character and characterization and character for all of like the gurus, right, is (laughs) the essence, right? It's as if we can all be reduced to some fundamental character trait. uh, And then the whole narrative, all of the obstacles, all of the conflict are designed to kind of chip away at the character to reveal this ultimate internal truth, right? This essence. And then they say that characterization is secondary to that. And that's where all the stuff around like identity. So one's race, ethnicity, ability, sexuality, gender, all of that. And they say that's basically just like decoration. That you just adorn your character afterwards with those things because it's the essence that matters. And I argue, uh, and I think we're seeing in a lot of television, some, some of the newer television writers are arguing through their art that actually those elements of characterization are fundamental to defining who a character is, what their Mm -hmm. experiences are, what kinds of narrative trajectories they can have, as well as how like they can move in the world and how the world responds to them in turn. And then if we don't take that into account as screenwriters, we are missing so much about life and people's Mm -hmm. lived material reality and experience. Can you give an example of uh, maybe a, a recent TV show that does that really well? Yeah. And in the book, I have four case studies. One is a cautionary tale case study. So that's on Killing Eve, which I know people love. But in terms of a good example, I talk about the show I May Destroy You, uh, which Mm -hmm. I think is truly brilliant. I think Michaela Cole is a genius. There's just so much in that show that is just rooted in a very like Black, British, female experience. Not that I can speak to that, but I can, you can see it on screen. You can see it in the way that Michaela Cole's character interacts with her best friend, Terry. You can hear it in the kinds of ways that she brings in her Ghanaian heritage and like the language that she speaks. And so Mm -hmm. there's just all of these ways that she's acknowledging what it's like to live as like a black woman in Britain came from like this whose parents came from a colonial context Mm -hmm. that you know if you just wrote some kind of like generic story you're not going to capture all of that it's not just texture it's more than that it's like soul Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I love that show yeah it's so good and I think the other thing she does too again thinking about like that specificity and that show in particular she talks about like that she always knew what it was like to live in the in the world as a black person, but she had never up until her assault understood what it was like to live as a woman. And so here she's mm-hmm. like 
foregrounding her intersectional identity and the aspects of it that she grappled with and the aspects of it that she hadn't yet. And like acknowledging that the world acts on her and uh, does things to her because of those specific intersections of identity that like, you know, the world doesn't act on the, the males in the same mm-hmm. way. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no, completely. And so um, to to continue along the line of like the critique of fundamentals of storytelling, I know that one of your chapters deals with like rethinking the role of conflict. Uh, is is that kind of some of what you're talking about here is like the conflict of identity versus world or like what are what are other structural things maybe related to conflict that um, are bare unpacking? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot about the difference between conflict and tension. And in particular, in screenwriting, there's a, like, if you take any screenwriting class, or even if you go and like bring your script to a studio, if there's not enough conflict, right, you're, you're, mm-hmm. someone's going to say something to you. Mm-hmm. And constantly it's like that you need more obstacles, you need more conflict. And to me, it's like, yes, conflict is important in as much as it generates narrative energy. But really what we have to think about is what we want is narrative energy and narrative energy really comes from tension and conflict is not the only thing that generates tension. Mm -hmm. Lots of different kinds of human interactions can generate tension, right? And so why are we so fixated on conflict which is really about dominating anything that comes into your path, right? I mean, there's so much in all film narratives are organized around like you know, the main character encounter, you know, there's the wake up call, right? And then they are invited on this journey where they have to encounter obstacle after obstacle in order to sort of chip away to reveal some inner essence so that they've grown or they've changed. But in order to get there, they have to master the the obstacles. They have to master the conflict and ultimately be the winner. Hmm. And that's really every narrative. And this is in film, this is in television. It's three-act structure essentially uh, as Mm -hmm. very much informed by the hero's journey. I think that that's a that's an important conversation so I'm curious how you square the like understanding and deconstructing sort of the inherent privilege and singular perspective of a lot of screenwriting advice with the fact that to your point like most studios are going to give you notes on like the things that they expect to be in a script regardless Mm -hmm. of whether it needs to be in that script how like how do you advise students on on that that inherent tension yeah I do talk about this I think the hardest thing is getting people to understand that they might actually have to be able to explain what they're doing and explain how they, if, so if, for example, I've had students very much drawn to this idea of like a conflictless narrative, but Mm -hmm. yet still a narrative full of tension, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can't truly have nothing happen, right? There has to be Mm -hmm. tension. There has to be some kind of energy that's moving the story in some direction, right? And if you don't go a conflict route, I think you, A, still have to create tension, you have to be very clear about what it is that has created that tension. Is it desire? Is it anxiety? Whatever. And then you have to make sure that your narrative is still structured and and it moves. So I think ultimately, one of the things I'm always trying to teach my students to do is, yes, you have to be creative. And yes, sometimes that requires like 
turning off all of your analytical apparatuses, apparati, um, <laughs> but that you also have to be able to analyze and articulate what it is that you're doing craft-wise, especially if you're writing work that is pushing it boundaries. So how do you define the difference between tension and conflict, especially if a student like wants to break out of their, their current form brain that doesn't know how? Yeah. Uh, I mean, conflict, it comes from the word to strike uh, in Latin. So it means it is about, you know, striking, it's about eliminating, it's about mastering, it's about dominating. Whereas tension is actually, again, from the Latin is about reaching. It's about aiming towards, coming towards, reaching out. Uh, so that, to me, those are strikingly different things uh, in terms mm -hmm. of one is inherently more violent than the other. Uh, and, and tension can be, like, tension can be beautiful, right? Tension can, like, I think in the book, I talk a lot about Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And she has a really brilliant lecture on screenwriting where she talks very explicitly about how she also is not interested in conflict, that she is interested in tension, and how she used the burgeoning desire of the two main characters in that movie to create the tension. Mm -hmm. So too often, I think, novice screenwriters or people who are like, I don't want to follow the rules. They just want to then do whatever they want. That is not the answer, right? Uh, <laughs> you still have to think about a structure. You still have to figure out what is the design. You still have to know like what is generating narrative momentum. There's other ways to do that other than other than the ways that have been prescribed. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I'm curious yeah. from your time as an academic, has this given you a new perspective on the craft of screenwriting? Like what have you learned from teaching screenwriting and from helping student level writers, especially when we're talking specifically about inclusivity and in narratives? I mean, I've mainly learned that there is a massive hunger for this breaking down of these structures. I mean, in particular, from my queer students, from my female students, from my students of color and the, all of the intersections of those identities. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, these structures, like the structure of the hero's journey and the structure of like character design, they, those are, in, they're inherently white. They're inherently mm -hmm. male and they masculinize their subjects and they whiten their narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, and then all, and God, and they straighten everything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so my students, when they, they, I find younger people, not just my students, because I also do a lot of consulting outside of academia, but the writers that I meet who are, invested in telling stories that actually represent themselves are very excited by the idea that there is another way and that there's a way that can be like mapped. There is not currently a map. I don't know if there should be a map. I think part of the problem is we have maps mm -hmm. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> it's like there's one map <laughs> and it's the white straight male map mm -hmm. that we're all supposed to just get fit, you know, get fit yourself in that mold. Like, do it. And I find that there's a lot of hunger to create new maps. It's really interesting. Can you yeah. give an example of, like, how... Because I think everyone's who's listening to this is probably at least tangentially familiar with, like, the hero's journey as a concept. Can you explain, like basically how something that seems innocuous and very, you know, blank page uh, actually falls into oppressive power structures? 
Sure. So if you think about a show like Killing Eve, it is essentially, it's a thriller. It's a spy thriller in particular. And sure, there are fun things that have been done in terms of taking this sort of traditionally masculinist spy thriller genre, where sometimes we see some homoerotic play between two men and like recasting that with women. So there's, sure, that's fun. But that's where, at least in the initial conception of it, that's where like any kind of, I think, creativity stopped was Mm -hmm. just in like, oh, we're going to make it women now. And then, you know, once it went from book to TV show, then it was like, oh, and then, you know, in casting, oh, good, we have Sandra Oh. So now there's supposedly this element of race and ethnicity, although if you really pay attention to the show, no one did any rewriting yeah, to accommodate <laughs> uh, the fact that Sandra Oh is, you know, of Korean descent. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's like barely some acknowledgement of that in the second season and maybe some subsequent seasons. But like, if you look at that whole series, like we learned so much more about Villanelle and Villanelle's backstory. I mean, that show is obsessed with whiteness and with in particular, this psychotic white woman, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so as speaking from narratively and the, the hero's journey, one of the things about thrillers, like if you go back, like to the basically the defining point of the thriller, which is Hitchcock essentially. Um, and like this whole idea of the everyman thriller, right? And it's always like this ordinary person finds themselves in these extraordinary circumstances and has mm-hmm. to like outmaneuver these malevolent forces and conquer them and emerge victorious. And that's essentially what the narrative of Killing Eve is mixed with you know, there's some genre mixing because there's some rom-com-y stuff, especially in the first season. But essentially, Sandra O's oh's character is thrown into this world with this psychopath who she's sort of attracted to, but not really, because they really, I think, sucked at the queer representation in that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but that eventually, you know, her, the whole fight between them is a, is, is, it's a fight for dominance, ultimately, at least in the first season. I know things, they kind of partnered up in later seasons, but... My chapter focuses primarily on the first season. And so ultimately, the the narrative and generic requirements of the thriller sort of pull what could potentially be this liberatory series focused on women and perhaps queer desire. uh, And it pulls it in this masculinist, straight, um, and I think very white uh, direction by making it about dominance and power. Um, I mean, in the last episode of the first season, Sandra O oh, like feigns vulnerability and then straddles Villanelle and stabs her in the stomach. I mean, mm-hmm. how much more phallic could you be? <laughs> and she wins. Yeah. Right. So if right. you were, if, if a student turned in the first season of um, Killing Eve to you, like, where would you have started? Especially if like, as I think we can agree, they, they, there was good intent, obviously, like they, they clearly wanted to explore these things, um, the length of to which we can debate forever. But like, let's assume good faith on the part of this student of yours who's turned in Killing Eve, like, where would you have started with that conversation about Hmm, I think maybe you're pulling from things that are not relevant to the story you're actually telling. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think I would, the first question I would ask is what story are you telling? Like, 
are you attached to a spy thriller, A? (laughs) (laughs) Are you interested in maintaining the generic constraints of the spy thriller? And if so, why? Uh, Why are you putting these women in this spy thriller box? Uh, Why are you introducing queer desire into this spy? I mean, I would be at, mostly I ask a lot of questions. Mm. And in answering those questions, people start to sort of realize that they have to, if they're going to, if their intent is some kind of like reparative or healing justice oriented narrative, they're going to have to grapple with the identities of the characters and see how those identities and the lived material experience and backstory of those characters are going to sort of come together and create different avenues uh, of exploration. So they can't rely on the traditional, like, I don't think we can ever eliminate three-act structure. Like, I just don't, it's just not going to happen. So being realistic, what I think you have to do is start thinking about, like, what are the conceptual attachments we have to each act and think about how can we switch those? Like, does, I mean, act one's pretty benign introduce the world, introduce the characters. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is introduce the problem. Do we have to introduce a problem? Does that problem have to be solved? Does act two have to be the container of conflict? What Mm -hmm. What does it look like if it doesn't contain conflict, if it just contains tension? And what does the tension look like? Does, and then thinking about like the third act, does the third act have to resolve everything? I mean, of course, Audiences have been trained that it's supposed to, so sometimes they get a little upset if, if, <laughs> if we don't. But is there something else we can give the audience in the third act if we don't orient around problem-solution logics? Like, and again, and I, I think some people might find this frustrating, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions. I know where to look. I know where to look at what's wrong and then... I think it's in this space. I, I see it all the time with my students. I see it with people I consult with outside of my job. Like people are playing with the conceptual attachments that are like deeply rooted in screenwriting to try new things. Mm. Um, I have a question. So what advice do you have for screenwriters who want to be culturally specific, but they're not maybe part of the culture that they're writing about? Or the character is part of. Uh, I would say don't. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and I know that people don't want to hear that. Uh, I cannot tell you the amount of times. It's mostly, it's white. It's both white men and women, honestly. Both. It's mm-hmm. white people are like, but but yeah. what about <laughs> me? What about mine? Right? <laughs> uh, and I think that's and something I talk about a lot is, I mean, that's whiteness. Whiteness thinks that it can occupy any space, any consciousness, any story. There's this sort of desire to be everyone, be everything. And I just, I, I, there's nothing I've ever seen that shows that white people have the capacity to do that well in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. That is an act, it is ultimately an act of violence, honestly. And so now that's, For some people already, they've turned off the podcast. They're like, I'm not, (laughs) this this is not what I wanted to hear today. Um, So what I do tell in particular white people, but also like men who want to write about women and Mm -hmm. with straight people who want to write about queer people, I really do just say, 
just please stop. Mm -hmm. And so, but if you, if you insist, I would say, uh, I think the best thing to do is you have to collaborate. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even think researching is enough because researching is another way of objectifying. um, So I think you have to collaborate with, and you have to be like creating with um, people who are of the identity group that you want to write about. There's actually, there's a really great essay by the poet Claudia Rankine and a woman named Beth Lafreda called Whiteness and the Racial Imagination. Uh, And in it, she addresses this very question and talks about how part of the problem with this conversation in particular is this, it, it gets into like rights, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but, and that, and you'll hear people say, but it's, you know, I'm entitled, like, or it's my right. I can write whatever I want because I have an imagination. And I'm like, (laughs) do you though? I don't. (laughs) Uh, Your, your imagination is informed by your very tiny lived material experience. And can you really imagine yourself outside of that? Can you actually occupy someone else's lived material reality and experience? And you, as far as I know, I have never been able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that Claudia Rankine says in this piece is that instead of getting into this conversation about rights, because that never goes well, instead she sort of reshapes the conversation by trying to get writers to think about like, why? Why do you want to write about experiences and stories of people who are not whose life stories you don't share. And she Mm -hmm. frames it in this really beautiful way. And she says, she frames the question as, what is the charisma I am drawn to in the other? And why do I want to inhabit that? Mm. And I think that's such a beautiful question. And I think it forces you to pause, right? So like, what is it about this life experience that I'm drawn to? And is there something in there that I could write about instead? That's a great question. Yeah. Because I something that I, I wanted to, to hear your thought on is that I, I think that the people who've turned off the podcast and maybe turned it back on to see if there <laughs> maybe there's something for them. I think that what a lot of people hear in what you just said is like, okay, I'm a white person, I can only write white characters. And that, to mm-hmm. my knowledge, is not what you're saying. It's it's a lot about like, whose story are you telling? And making yeah. sure that you are like, bringing in other voices and not just as consultants but as like people involved in shaping the narrative with equal stakes in the narrative when you go beyond your personal like racial cultural identity is that fair to say yes absolutely (laughs) yeah and i mean like killing eve as an example i'm fairly certain that there weren't korean american or korean british or any korean writers of any kind in the writer's room for any season. Um, And that's a huge problem. Yeah. No, there were no, I don't, I'm pretty sure there were no people of color, period. Yeah. And there were no queer people. Mm. It was a bunch of- I didn't know that. Wow. It was a bunch of straight white women. Yeah. And it took, uh, the reason that anything culturally specific in terms of Sandra Oh's character's Koreanness. The only reason that came into being was because she pushed for it and mm-hmm. she had to like, you know, she would get the script and she would be like, no, like, no, my character doesn't wear shoes in the house. Like, do you know anything right. about <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. And that should not be on the actor to have to insist. Like, it's great that she had the power on that set to say something. Most actors don't on yeah. indie or beyond. Mm-hmm. 
So, hey, writers, get your shit together. Um, but I, I'm actually, this this is an interesting conversation that I want to have a parallel one about writers who are writing from communities that they are a part of. Like, how do you advise writers about sort of avoiding and acknowledging tropes that, while maybe rooted in truth, aren't written about in a vacuum like uh you know an example is a lot of times i i work with like bisexual writers who have a bisexual character that's very sort of traditionally like slutty and like their characterizations they sleep with everyone and they're like oh well i'm like that and the complications of you know navigating that conversation with them it's like yes you are bisexual yes you are a person who is a free lover but you also have to acknowledge that like you're not writing the story in a vacuum and that put potentially put you in a weird situation like how how do you navigate that when like they're part of the community but they still need to acknowledge that like truth does not give you the right to write off potential harm of certain depictions yeah i think that is we are very much in this the era of this question because mm. you know we are seeing more and i think sometimes slightly better representation happening but there's still so little and so what you're getting at is the fact that there's all this pressure on writers who occupy traditionally marginalized identities to like do their communities right, right? Because right. if they don't, they're going to hear about it. And they're not going to hear about it from like the studio execs who are not part of those communities. They're going to hear about it directly from the community who they feel accountable to, right? And mm -hmm. potentially who they're writing for, uh, mm -hmm. which is... Fairly think, or unfairly, which is a whole other conversation. Yes. Um, and regardless, I think it's that's tremendously painful, right? Because I think most of us who have come into film as people with marginalized identities, like part of what we're trying to do is write a lot of harm that we have experienced by the ways we've seen ourselves depicted in media. So what do you do then? Uh, I think one of the easiest ways to do that within whatever story you're telling is let other characters voice that exact concern. Ooh, that's good. So like good. bring it in, like don't act like that's not an issue. Like bring it into the story, make your character confront that in some way. So that way the people watching who are holding that critique and like, or like waiting <laughs> to see <laughs> themselves, they're going to know like, okay, not in this show, but at least they know that, right? I feel like that's enough in part just because it's, I think it's so unfair that, again, writers with marginalized identities get, you know. Tokenized. Yes. Held and, up on the pedestal. Yeah. And then also like critiqued so heavily when they haven't with their one show, <laughs> like righted a century of wrong. That's a yep. lot of weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that something that, you know, doesn't often come up in these sorts of conversations about inclusivity and storytelling and representation matters and all that kind of stuff is the fact that like the audience should probably be a part of these conversations. And I feel like they mm. often aren't like audiences, both because they don't have a fundamental understanding of the construction of of media and art, but also just because they are often just seeing like the final, final results aren't necessarily looking into things in a nuanced way, which is unfair to the creators, but also fair because the audience is who we're making work for. And so like, how do you have those kinds of complex conversations with your students about not just you can't make everyone happy, but sort of the, the fundamental, again, tension of 
when you are one of the first or only people telling a certain kind of story, the audiences that you're making those stories for will love and hate you in equal parts. Yeah, that's a tough <laughs> one. I often think in that case, I often like to bring up, there's like this little Buddhist saying that I've always liked. It's really simple. And it really, it, all it says is, you will fall into disrepute. Mm. Like, <laughs> and I think that that's something as an artist, absolutely, you have to know is going to happen. There are going to be people who love your work. There's going to be people who hate your work. It is, as I said earlier, it is more painful when the community that you are writing for and trying to like, like sometimes it's like, this is a, but this is a love letter to you. And they're like, no, thank you. We, we did not ask for that. <laughs> right. uh, and I do think that's very painful. Um, and I think the key is to really listen, first of all. Like, are they right? That's a hard one, right? But I, I wish, you know, I wish that the writer's room of Killing Eve had been paying attention to all mm -hmm. of the queer women and non-binary people who were massive fans of their show uh, before they, and I'm, I'm going to say spoiler alert, before yes. they buried their gay yeah. at the end, yeah. like they clearly were not paying attention. And I think you do, I think you do have to listen. And I think a lot of times audiences are right. And so can you listen? Can you grow? Can you be in conversation with them? Because I mean, again, so much of our media now, it's social, right? I don't, yeah. <laughs> like we watch TV socially. We watch movies socially. We tweet about them while we're watching them together. Mm -hmm. And so like mm -hmm. there are opportunities to be in conversation. And in particular, if you are someone who's in community, like within like a, especially like an indie community, um, you're going to be talking to people. And I think you should, I just, I think we need to listen. Yeah. Listening is definitely a missing link in a lot of these conversations. A lot of talking, not a lot of listening. Yeah. So we've kind of touched on the idea of like defensiveness, both from people outside of a community that they're trying to write about, as as well as people within a community who are like, well, this is my truth. How can my truth be harmful kind of a thing? So as a, an academic, as a person who talks about this kind of thing a lot, like how do you, I don't want to say combat, because that's going back to that very masculine, violent language, <laughs> but like how, how do you work against defensiveness from writers with, again, best of intentions, but who just aren't understanding, you know, that like universal truths may not be as universal as we have been taught. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the key, I think, is to, and again, I can do this more easily when I'm teaching a class, for example, because I have like, they're, they have to come for 10 weeks. <laughs> yeah, undivided attention. <laughs> Um, but I think the key is to also to try to let, like, show them examples of the ways that this belief in universal story is actually deeply harmful. Mm. And so just, I mean, I'm really relentless about these things. Um, we, we read about it. We watch films and television shows that are examples of it. We dissect those. Then we also, I spend a lot of time... I think one thing that has been a problem in terms of moving the bar on representation is we tend to get very fixated on all of the ways media has been done poorly or all of the harm that's been done. So we're like, look at this shitty example, look at this terrible stereotype. And we're constantly looking at identifying and critiquing the problems 
but we don't actually look at media that's doing things well or doing things mm -hmm. differently. And that was one thing I very much set out to do with the book. I do have my one chapter that's a cautionary tale on killing Eve because I thought mm -hmm. that was important. But then the other three case studies, as well as all of the examples I talk about in the first half of my book, those are they're all examples of people who are doing things and pushing narrative and pushing character design and pushing world building in new and different and interesting and respectful directions. We need more focus on good representation and then an analysis of the techniques and the tactics that are getting that good representation or that maybe better than good organic, uh, organic representation. I'm pulling that from, there's a scholar here in Chicago named Amarjean Christian. He's the founder of OTV, mm. works out of Northwestern. He does a lot of work in reparative media practices, and that's what OTV was founded upon. And his he has a piece called Organic Representation where he talks about, instead of using this term good or bad, just like organic versus plastic representation. I like that. Yeah, no, thank you. You're like giving us a reading list beyond just yeah, your I'm, book I that I'm it. like writing down as you're talking. I'm like, okay, this is Jess's reading list. I have to go through all of these now. Yes. <laughs> so it sounds like obviously, you know, educating yourself, listening to communities, talking to people are like big strategies that you would recommend for screenwriters. So like zooming out again, kind of to, to our audience, to our audience of largely screenwriters, um, many of which have one or, or many different intersectional identities, but many of which may not have those. Like what, what are things that you want people to think about on this, on the high level subject of, you know, telling stories responsibly, writing stories responsibly? Like what are, what are some, some things that people should be thinking about, should be putting into practice that maybe you don't see very often? Yeah, I love that. One thing I think about a lot that we don't talk about enough is the whole idea of what defines agency and what is mm -hmm. recognizable as agency within screenwriting. So in screenwriting, agency is recognized as someone who dominates their opponents mm -hmm. or the world in some way, right? It, it is very much a masculinist paradigm of like, what is a character? A character is someone who acts and think about all of the screenwriting manuals have some section about like, you know, watch out for the passive character. Passive characters mm -hmm. are the death of your screenplay. Mm -hmm. And before I go on, I'm not about to tell us all to make passive characters. <laughs> what I think that gets at it, that's a very limited understanding of agency, right? Certain people can go through the world and beat everybody up and <laughs> can act upon the world. They can act upon the world. There are others of us who have to spend most of our time doing things so that we are not acted upon by those people, mm. right? And typically when you are someone who is trying to avoid being harmed, that is not seen as agency. Sure. And I think we need to think about what does, can we tell stories that center different forms of agency? And so a great example, uh, think about like women in domestic violence situations and think about, I mean, and culturally, like we're so harmful, like we're constantly like, well, why doesn't she just leave? And it's like, mm -hmm. well, she's trying not to die. Yeah. And that's a act of supreme agency. 
if you Mm -hmm. think about it, but it doesn't look like agency because it might look like smiling in the face of her abuser. Yeah. It might look like staying in a violent situation to avoid being pursued and and harmed. Uh, It might look like prayer, Mm. right? Like there are ways. And I think, again, I think of just the massive failure of imagination that goes into these really limited ideas of what we can tell stories about, who we can tell stories about. And so I think one avenue for screenwriters to think about is agency and like think about your own agency, think about the complicated ways you've enacted agency and how can that be captured in a screen story? I would love to see that. Um, I think about a lot about the movie Moonlight. Um, I think about Carol as well and the ways that like, and actually Portrait of a Lady on Fire fits in this as well. Like all of those main characters being queer in a heteronormative world, they had to like curtail their agency in certain environments. But then when they somehow escaped the world, whether through an island with no men (laughs) or, you know, uh, a road trip um, or like, you know, a dimly lit restaurant at night, much later, right? Then they were able to like emerge in different Mm. ways. So those I think are some really beautiful examples that start to get at this idea, these different kinds of agency. Because otherwise what you end up with, if we go back to like the domestic violence situation, you end up with movies like Enough, right? Where the abused woman is going to learn martial arts and what is she going to do? She's going to dominate her abuser. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Physical strength is not the only kind of strength. And the, you know, I I think thankfully, I at least think that we are mostly beyond the like strong female character of it all that I think was a a big part of the conversation in like the 2010s, like the early aughts. I'd like to believe that we're beyond that now where it's not like you are either traditionally feminine and weak and a victim or you're a strong female character, which means you wear heels, but you punch. Uh, so like, thankfully we're beyond that, but that, that feels like very much kind of what you're talking about of this sort of like assumption that to be inclusive, you just put women in male roles with male behavior. You just put queer people in straight roles with straight behavior Mm -hmm. and that you're still using the paradigm and lens of patriarchal power structures rather than critiquing the structure itself, rather than the perception of a character through the same lens that we've always seen. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But I mean, the strong female lead is still a category on Netflix, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... Netflix. Oh boy, Netflix. So, um, so take, well, actually Netflix is a great segue for this because I think then zooming out again, like obviously we're having this really interesting craft conversation and these are important sort of barriers to break down in your own writing process. But also I think all three of us can acknowledge that the traditional filmmaking world, be it the indie filmmaking world or the, you know, traditional Hollywood path is still paved with you know patriarchal and heteronormative bricks and so i assume when you're talking to to your screenwriting students frequently they want to sell a screenplay work in hollywood write for television how do you advise them to navigate these conversations with you know very probably white straight cis dudes who are at the top of every conversation how do they you know stay true to their storytelling devices and the communities they want to tell stories about while also acknowledging that like 
in order to have success. A lot of times, you know, you have to talk to people who just are committed to misunderstanding you because they are looking at this as a business and not as an art form. Like, can you speak to that? Yeah, no, I think that's, that is one of the fundamental things that I, and I do always, I am a very practical person. So I I understand that what I am talking about here today is pretty radical. um, And the world might not be ready for it. That doesn't mean that I'm still not going to keep pushing for it because I want better for the yeah. cultural imaginary. But I do think, yes, it's it's essential that anyone going into Hollywood understand the environment that they're entering. And I think it come, to me it comes down to, A, what are your goals, right? So like what do you want out of any particular pitch or any particular contact? And also what are you willing, what are you willing to give up? right? Like, are you willing to compromise your ideals to like get in the door so that you can do this work later? You have to know that about yourself. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to judge you if that's the path you're going to take. If you know that you, like I've, that's kind of, I think how I felt when I was younger. I cannot do that now. I could not pretend (laughs) uh, to support, you know, I just, I can't, I can't fake it anymore is basically what I'm saying. And so I think mm-hmm. if you know that you like are not going to be able to like exist in these heavily patriarchal straight white spaces, then you need to think about like, what's a different direction your career could take, which, you know, so much of, and one of the really nice things about the film school at DePaul is there is like a healthy balance of both indie filmmaking and traditional Hollywood filmmaking and neither is really held up as like the ultimate. It's like, this is a way you can go. And if you don't really like this way, here's another way you can go. Um, and I think it's mostly about knowing, you know, it, it's mostly about knowing who you are, what your creative goals are. And again, what can you endure or not endure? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. I also think that Something that the pandemic certainly has brought forward and something that Christine and I have talked about a lot just with each other as well as on the podcast is that like sometimes in acknowledging the harms that a capitalist system of creating art, you have to acknowledge that maybe art will never be your full time job and you kind of have to make your peace with that. And that's really tough. And everyone has a different line at at which point, you know, they're willing to give up the grind or give up like certain things in order to stay true to the kind of stories they want to tell. And I don't think that there is a neat answer to that. And that's Mm -hmm. hard, especially in a podcast like this, where we're trying to, you know, advise people on their creative careers. But sometimes the right choice for you is for your creative endeavors to not be your career. And I think that I wish people were would acknowledge that in a way that doesn't feel defeatist because I don't think that's a defeat. I think that's an acknowledgement of boundaries that is really brave. Mm -hmm. I agree with that very much. Do you have any other resources that specifically writers can lean on to ensure they're being inclusive in their storytelling outside of, of course, your book, which we will be linking to in the episode description of uh, Mm -hmm. this episode and, and putting on social. Yeah. Okay. I gave definitely some there. I'm trying to think of, so I give the Claudia Rankine piece. That's important. I would, oh, uh, I talked about Amar Christian's organic representation piece. Um, yep. That might be a little hard for people to find if they don't have access to a library, um, but look mm-hmm. for Got it. it. 
Then there's also, there's a black female scholar named Kristen J. Warner who wrote a piece called Plastic Representation, which is the sort of kind of like the piece that sparked Amar's piece on organic representation. And in that piece, Kristen J. Warner talks about just kind of this idea of like the universal neutral, kind of like the universal neutral character design and narrative structure and the way that not acknowledging cultural specificity leads to this like plastic representation. And in particular in that piece, she talks about the Jay-Z video Moonlight. And if you've never Mm -hmm. seen that, get ready to have your socks knocked off. It's very much encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about today, where uh, I'll just give a basic premise of it. It's basically starts with someone basically remaking Friends with an all-black cast, Mm. which is a terrible idea. Yeah. (laughs) But the, the, the video acknowledges that, and I won't say any more. And if you watch that alongside reading Plastic Representation by Kristen J. Warner, like, it's just going to open a tremendous amount of generative thinking. Awesome. The only other piece that's coming to mind is there's a really great piece. It was in the Atlantic and I'm not going to know the exact name of it, but I call it the negotiated authenticity piece. So there's a piece in the Atlantic about the way that in particular for black writers in Hollywood, the way they've had to like create what's called like a negotiated authenticity in their creation of black characters as a way to please their white colleagues. Mm. And I think that is also, again, it's a little more focused on the problematic aspect of things, but I think it's a very real, it's a, it's real, it's real and it's good. Great. Yeah. And for listeners, I I will be doing my best to find links to all of these or at least a direction for all of these to go. Uh, And they will definitely be linked in um, our our Patreon, patreon.com slash breaking up pod, which we post uh, companion resources to every episode of this podcast. Just in case you've forgotten. (laughs) Awesome. Amazing. Well, Jess, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Um, final plugs for the book again we will put a link in the description but any final sort of high level things that you want to share about the book that's coming out i think in recording time tomorrow uh and it is already out by the time listeners are listening and specifically is there like the what's the best site to get it from that most supports you i would say i mean it's an academic book, so it's never going to support me. <laughs> um, but I don't care about that so much. My interest truly is I wanted, I want this to be a part of the conversation. I want to get this mm-hmm. book out there. Of course, I want like students to read it. I want indie filmmakers to read it. I also want industry people to read it. And I want, it's going to challenge their preconceived notions of everything storytelling it's going to make some of them very angry um i know Mm -hmm. that for a fact i do expect some backlash from this book um but in terms of where to get it um i say support your local indie bookstore and my my publisher is rutledge so like they're everywhere so you should be able to find it at your local indie bookstore great i would just say don't buy it from the place we will whose name we will not mention (laughs) Uh, yeah try to support local indie stuff great great well uh we'll we'll try to find some some links for that in the video description but um thank you so much jess for for sharing everything yeah thank you thank you for having me i am so excited and i really do feel honored to be 
on your podcast. I think it's such a great resource. I still have to go back to the beginning of year one, but already like I have episodes marked to bring into my classes. So um, thank yeah. you. Awesome. Thank you both for what you do. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs who are our $10 supporters on Patreon. That's Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, and Norman Steinberg. If you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we'll be discussing environmentally sustainable sets with special guest Stephanie Dawson. Be sure to tune in.